0: Let us pray. O oh Lord, illumine us now, through the word we have heard, to understand what it says, what we think it says, and what you want to say. in Christ's name. Amen. When I finished seminary, I went to England to serve a church for a year, and in the British Methodist system, you're not only appointed to an individual congregation, but within a circuit of congregations. So I was in a circuit in Bristol, England, which meant that you preach not just in your church, but on a rotation so that you go to other congregations. One of the churches in our circuit had what was called a cooperative parish arrangement with a Church of England congregation, an Anglican church. One Sunday, I preached there for the morning service. It was a most forgettable sermon. I don't remember a word I said, and I'm sure none of the congregants remembered a word even by the end of lunch that day. But what happened after the service, I shall never forget. As my custom usually is, I went to the The back of the church, or I guess the entrance of the church. It had one main door coming in to greet people as they left. I was there until the last congregant was out the door. So I walked back into an empty sanctuary, made my way back to the vestry to take off my robe, gather my belongings. And as I'm doing this, I heard in the distance a clank and then a click. Gathered my things, walked back through the empty sanctuary, went to the door to push it to leave, and it was locked. It one of these giant, oak-thick doors with massive hardware, you know, a, a handle to open the door, and this keyhole that you could literally look straight through, which meant the only way to unlock the door was with one of these big iron keys that you put in there and turn. Well, I figured what I obviously heard was the curator of the church locking it and was probably at one of the other entrances waiting for me to leave. So I go to the two side doors. Same experience. I went to the far door at the other end of the building. It was locked. Now I'm getting a little anxious, jogging through the church. Hello? Anybody there? Hello? No answer. I realized what happened. This person had locked the other doors, and what I heard was the last door being locked when she left the building. I thought, okay, okay. They have to have safety measures in buildings to keep this kind of thing from happening. But I looked at every door. There was no safety measure, no crash bars. This building was probably built when Henry VIII was on the throne of England, probably preceded OSHA. I thought, well, I'll have to climb out a window. So I started searching for a window. They were all stained glass. The bottoms of the windows started at eight feet high. I sat down in a pew and realized I'm locked in church. Fortunately, this congregation had an evensong service, so that six hours later, when the pastor got there to open the church and found me inside, he was surprised, and then he broke out into laughter and said, well, my young American friend, you must have had wonderful hours to develop your prayer life today. (laughs) That cooperative parish arrangement just about ended that day with an international incident. (laughs) Have you ever been locked in church? Maybe not physically, but there are a lot of ways to be locked in church. You can be locked in by the ideas and the beliefs that you find yourself struggling with. You can be locked in by the prejudices and the values of a community that you're no longer comfortable with. You can be locked in by limited thinking and the lack of freedom to ask your questions. It's an interesting thing that the place Where faith is discovered and nurtured and formed can become an obstacle to that faith. The story we're thinking about today is a popular miracle story of Jesus walking on the water. It is a miracle story, but you may be surprised to learn that it's really a story about church and about faith and about doubt. This story is what inspired the first logo for the church, the boat, a Galilean fishing boat, wooden boats with a mast in the middle with a crossbar, crossbeam that held the sail. So it looked like a cross in a boat. Where did that come from? I can imagine there were leaders in the first century church predicting the day in which there would be an internet and social media. And getting together and saying, we've got to come up with a brand for ourselves. We need a logo that describes not just what we believe, but who we are. And they hired a first century Jewish marketing firm (laughs) that sent the executives in to interview the disciples about all of their experiences with Jesus. And then they came back to the leaders and said, here it is, a boat. Now, maybe it didn't happen quite that way but it obviously took. Today, the World Council of Churches has as its logo the boat. This symbol, this logo, finds its way into our very language. The central part of a sanctuary is often called the nave, N-A-V-E, comes from the Latin word naus, which means ship or boat. Now, why would this story about Jesus walking on water inspire the boat as a logo for the church, maybe. There were leaders of the church at the time who said, the boat caught in a storm looks like us today. The first century was a stormy time for the church. It still is stormy times for the church. From scandals to schisms, to a culture that is increasingly disinterested in organized religion and church, and political divisions finding their way into the pews. These are stormy times for the church. In November, we had over 100 congregations just in the Indiana Conference, disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. That's about 10% of our congregations in Indiana. A number of my colleagues, my age, I went to seminary with, graduated at the same time as others, are are retiring early because they're saying my ministry has been reduced to conflict management. And I'm tired of the nonstop criticism. Maybe that's why the boat got used as a symbol for the church, but there's hope. Because Jesus took notice when he went up on the mountain and sent the disciples away in a boat. He took notice of the boat, that it was caught in a storm, that it was being battered by the waves, and he went to them, walking on water. That was actually an important symbol in the Old Testament for the power of God. A number of verses mention this like the book of Job chapter 9 verse 8 that says God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea it means only God can walk on water file that one away we'll come back to it in a moment only God can walk on water when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the waves they cried out in fear and Jesus says it is I don't be afraid. And Peter gets up and says, then bid me come to you. And he walks on the waves until he sees the waves and the wind, takes his attention off of Jesus, starts to seek. Jesus rescues him. They get in the boat, and the storm dies down, and the disciples worship Jesus and say, truly, you are the Son of God. This is most likely the reason the boat got used as a symbol for the church. This is the first time the disciples worshiped Jesus. Up to this point, it says they were amazed by what he did. This is the first time now that they have worshiped. So they're full of faith. We've got the church, we've got faith, Where does doubt show up in this story? Many people would say, well, it was when Peter was walking on water himself and took his eyes off of Jesus and looked at the storm. That's when doubt showed up. After all, Jesus said to him in the boat, why did you doubt? I don't disagree. I just believe doubt shows up earlier. I believe doubt first appears in this story when Peter doubted whether or not to stay in the boat. That when he realized it was Jesus on the waves, that he might have wondered, is there an experience of Christ I won't have if I stay in this boat? That I need to get out of the boat in order to get closer to Jesus. Jesus. Right now, turn to the person next to you and say, where's he going with this? (laughs) Here it is. Are you ready? In order for you to get closer to Jesus, have you ever had to leave the church? It's counterintuitive, I know. After all, the boat is where the disciples first met Jesus. It was the boat where they first dedicated their lives to following Jesus. But sometimes along the way, the boat can become confining. It can become restrictive. do we say, I don't know that I believe the same things as everybody in this boat with me. I believe there's something that Jesus is doing out there that's not happening in here. And to be a part of it, I've gotta leave the boat. Have you ever had to leave the boat? Have you ever had to escape the boat in order to experience more of Jesus? The faith community, the place where faith is formed, when it starts to reduce faith to what it says and does, It loses its way. When the church says that faith is no more than what we say and do, the boat has sprung a leak. Barbara Brown Taylor, Episcopal priest and author, chronicles her own experience of deciding at a point in a career that for the sake of her health and her faith, she needed to leave church. The title of one of the books she wrote is Leaving Church. She talks about the conflicts in the congregation, over whether or not they would be inclusive and accepting of all people, how they interpret Scripture, other politics. I like one of the quotes that she has in the book. As a general rule, she says, I would say that human beings never behave more badly toward one another than when they believe they are protecting God. As the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi said, people of the book risk putting the book above people. Some of you have said the same thing in expressing your doubts, your questions about faith and religion. This is one comment a person submitted, why do so many who claim faithful discipleship in the name of Christ behave and act in a way that is so unlike the teachings of Jesus? Is there really this much room for different interpretations of Christianity? As we continue in this polarized world, how can followers at St. Luke's feel confident in our faith? You know, sometimes I find that when we talk about faith, or when we talk about doubt, We aren't really talking about doubt in God. We're really talking about doubt in the institutions that represent God. It's not that we stop believing in God, we stop believing in the church. The doubts are really more of of a complaint. Do we have to believe this way? Is this all there is to faith? Is this the correct interpretation of scripture? Maybe you can relate to having times where it felt like you needed to get out of that boat just as, just as Peter did. He doubted if staying in the boat was the right thing to do in this moment, but doubt continues for Peter because when he stands up and realizes it's Jesus who says to him, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter says in response, Lord, if it is you, have we heard those words before? Remember Jesus in the wilderness, the start of his ministry, when Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, then, and he gives him temptations, if you are. Peter, if it is you, He's not sure about staying in the boat, but he's not sure either about getting out of it. He's doubting. He wants to share Jesus' power because if he can walk on water, then Peter has power over his storms, and that's a dangerous temptation because if Peter has power over his storms, he doesn't need a Savior who has it. When they get in the boat after Jesus has rescued them, and says, why did you doubt? I don't believe Jesus is saying, why did you doubt me? I believe he's asking him not about his doubt, but what he was believing in. Was he believing in Jesus' power? Or was he believing in his own? Was he wanting to put his faith and his trust in his ability, in what he could do, in what he thinks, in what he says? The greatest act of faith in this story appears like the most embarrassing. He cries out, Lord, save me! And there is the display finally of some faith where he realizes, I've got nowhere to turn. Lord, save me. That's the act of faith when we all can say that. Lord, save me. Lord, save our church. Lord, save our world because we sure can't. We need you. We don't need a faith that gives us the ability to get out of the boat. We need a faith that will desperately seek Christ to get in the boat with us. My preaching professor in seminary, Dr. Fred Craddock, in his discussion of this passage, says that the point of the sermon is not that had Peter not looked at the wind and the waves and stayed focused on Jesus, he would not have sunk. He said, that's not the point. The point isn't about how great Peter is. The point is that Peter and the rest of the people in the boat need Jesus with them. Listen to what he says about this story. The sermon Matthew preaches is a sermon to the church. It's a sermon for all the followers of Jesus and all our little boats and all of the storms trying to make it alone, and they couldn't. That's a hard lesson to learn. The church is never... You are never, I am never exempt from the temptation to try to go it alone. Sometimes it's true. We have to leave the boat to rediscover faith. But it's also true that we need the boat to keep that faith. We need the boat. We need other people to encourage our faith and to keep it strong and allow us to ask the questions. On Wednesdays, for the pastor's book study that meets in the common room just down the West Passage, we're studying Brian McLaren's Faith After Doubt. If you want to continue the conversation yourself, I invite you to join us Wednesday. We've got some room in the class, it's also online. In a part of the book, he talks about as an evangelical Christian, growing in his faith, beginning to question and doubt a church that rejected him for his doubts, getting to a place in his life where he was done with church. He was ready to walk away from church and then something changed it. An August Saturday in 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia clergy friends of his reached out to him and said we don't know how this has happened but our city has become a hotbed of white nationalism and there's going to be a rally this Saturday and we would like for you to be here to stand with us in fact we're all going to be wearing as clergy members our robes our vestments we hope you'll be here He's ready to leave church. He doesn't believe in the church anymore, but because of his commitment to his friends, he went. He was standing there when the van plowed into the crowd and killed a woman. He says, interestingly enough, that that was the day he stopped giving up on church. The church saved his faith. That the church that told him your thinking is outside the box, it's unacceptable, became an experience where he said, There are people willing to put their lives on the line to do what's right. The world needs the church when it does what it should. It saved his faith. It's a it's a conundrum, I'll admit. That the very place we feel like we have to leave to restore our faith, to be reconnected in a deeper way with Christ, to be about the business Christ is about, is also the very place where we need that help and that support to nurture and to strengthen that faith so that we look like Jesus does if Jesus were in our place. We need the help of others around us to do that. That's what this story in Matthew is about. Not that we don't need boats, but we must have those boats doing Jesus' work in the world today. If we are to stay true to what we believe is true, we've all got to be willing to say we might be wrong. That's religion's hidden need the ability to question ourselves and to ask, are we really doing what Jesus would do? Do we really look like Jesus, alive today? This is why we need the church. I close with a story appropriate for Martin Luther King Day. When I was in seminary, there was a professor who taught Methodist, polity a man named bishop nolan Harmon. he was 98 years old and at that time he had lived half of methodist history who better to teach it a couple of years later i'm in my first church my district superintendent calls me one day and he says rob i've got an opportunity for you why is it superintendents always when they want you to do something they say i've got an opportunity for you it wasn't to go to a different church he said bishop nolan Harmon from atlanta is going to be at our annual conference and he can't drive anymore he was driving when i was in seminary 98 years old had a giant chevrolet impala never should have been driving but he did he finally gave up his car and so he needed somebody driving back to atlanta i said oh i had bishop Harmon in a class sure he's 100 years old now so i pick him up and we began the three and a half hour drive back to atlanta I'm I'm just soaking it in, hearing his stories about Methodist history when he went to preach at his first church on horseback, no car. As we're talking about all of the things he did in his life, somewhere in the back of my head, I remembered at some point his ministry went to Alabama, and we got to talking about civil rights. And I said to him, It must have been exciting to be in Alabama during the time of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because I'm naive and I believe all Methodists love Martin Luther King. And he said, well, let me tell you something, young man. Those were tough times for the church. Sure, Martin Luther King did some good things. But there are those of us who were trying to hold the church together. And it got kind of testy. We didn't talk a whole lot after that point of the ride back to Atlanta. (laughs) But I did a little research on it later on. I found out that Bishop Nolan Harmon was one of the eight clergy members in Birmingham, Alabama, who wrote an open letter to Dr. Martin Luther King to tell him that you need to slow down. You're, You're pushing things too much. you you, you need to just back off and when he was arrested and sitting in a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter to Bishop Nolan Harmon and the other seven clergy the letter from the Birmingham jail one of the most amazing pieces of literature if you will that I've ever read without a book in his hand to cite his resources. Quoting from memory people like Reinhold Niebuhr who said groups are more immoral than individuals. If you want to spend your day tomorrow in a very healthy way read letter from a Birmingham jail. How Did an African-American pastor in his early 30s have the courage to write to and challenge leading representatives of all faiths in Birmingham at that time? Back in 2007, there was an article in the Seattle Times They said, most people don't realize how much Martin Luther King Jr. doubted. When he was in seminary, he doubted what were felt to believe to be, especially in the black church, core beliefs. The virgin birth. You have to be born again. Dr. King said, I don't know that I believe that. And he would be attacked for it. But something in him started to develop, this this resolve to deal with the reactions to his doubts. It gave him a strength. Friends watched that happen. And they said it doesn't surprise us a bit that when he took a church in Montgomery, Alabama, they would want him to be their leader because his doubts had done something to him. They had given him a strength and a resolve to stand firm when people react, he would go on to doubt a lot bigger things than fine points of religious doctrine. He would doubt the very establishment of his day. Sometimes we doubt, and all we want is answers. And what we may miss Is what's God doing with us with our doubts? Maybe a better question is not God, what are the answers to my questions? But God, how do you want to use the doubts I have?